The preacher has made all of his points, and you know he's just about finished. It may even be a little bit of rattling of paper because you know he's just about finished. And there may be some points during the lesson where you were a little bit confused, didn't quite know where he was going, but, but he's, he's appealed to Scripture over and over and over again. You know that what he has said is true. You may have had to think a little bit, but you see the truth of God's Word being borne out as he's gone through the lesson and pointed you back to Scripture over and over and over again. But as any good preacher would, before he finishes up the lesson, he takes a few minutes to make an application, to make an appeal to try to show what this old text means now in your life in today's world. How to be a better husband or a better neighbor or a better wife or just a better Bible student or whatever it happens to be. How this applies all these years later because he's trying to build a bridge from a text that could seem ancient, even outdated if we're not careful, to something that obviously now shows itself to be something I need in my life today. Have you ever considered the fact that there's at least one book in the Bible that does exactly that? That reads as if it were a sermon itself. So much so that there are some scholars who suggest it originally was a sermon. It's the book of Hebrews. Because you see, for 12 chapters, as we have that book divided up and given to us, for 12 chapters, it seems as if a preacher is pointing his listeners, or his readers, back to texts. Over and over and over again, he points his readers to Deuteronomy, to Psalms, to Jeremiah, and on and on and on it goes. But as he goes through this particular book or this particular sermon, whichever it originally was, he's really just making one point. Consider Jesus because he's better. That's really the whole whole point of the book of Hebrews. It was preached or written to people who had been Jews, who had now become Christians, but were being tempted to leave Christianity because of persecution, because of difficulty, because some of their former Jewish friends were saying, hey, look at all the difficulty you're going through, and we're not, so why wouldn't I go back to Judaism? Why wouldn't I go back to there? It's a lot easier doing that. And so he keeps saying, look, Judaism was fine for a time, but consider Jesus. And look at how much better he is than the old way. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. His worship is better. His tabernacle is better. His law is better. And on and on and on it goes. To the point that you get to Hebrews chapter 11 and you have the famous Hall of Faith chapter. By faith Abel did this and by faith Enoch did that and by faith Noah did this and on and on it goes. Through all these famous Old Testament people, and showing the amazing things that they did. And then the writer turns to what we know as Hebrews chapter 12. And if you have your Bible open to Hebrews, I want you to notice what he does at the beginning of that particular chapter. As he continues to show that Jesus is better, after he's shown all of these Old Testament worthies, we sometimes call them, the Hall of Faith, or Faith's Hall of Fame, he opens chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher, some translations have the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says in verse 3, Consider Him. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart, or some translations have, grow faint-hearted. Now, we have that written down to us in book form. And so if you were just reading through the book of Hebrews, and you get to chapter 12, and you read those verses, and you think, how much longer is he going to go on trying to make this one point that Jesus is better? And so you kind of decide to flip forward in your Bible, and you think, oh, he's only got a page or so to go. He's almost done. And you come to Hebrews chapter 13. And some have called Hebrews chapter 13 the application chapter. Because as any good preacher would, the Hebrews writer comes to this final chapter and he begins to say, so what? What difference does it make in your everyday life if Jesus is better? What difference does it make, not just in some kind of worship ceremony, not just in some kind of comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, but what difference would it make in my Sunday through Saturday life if Jesus was better? And so for the, the, basically the totality of Hebrews chapter 13, he gives points of application. Now we don't have time this morning to talk about all of them. What I want to do this morning is look at those passages that we read together a a while ago, Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6, and make four points of application to make sure that you look at the rest of the chapter later and see that these points of application don't stop there. All, virtually all, of Hebrews chapter 13 is the so what. When we consider Jesus, what difference does it make? Do you see how those things tie together in this book? Think about how you had it, Jewish Christians. Think about how much better you have it in Christ. Fix your mind fully on Him. And I want to show you what a difference it will make. Four things from Hebrews 13. When we consider Jesus in the first place, unity is ongoing. I remember it very well. We were on vacation in the Smoky Mountains, I was probably about 15 years old. And we went to Wednesday night Bible study in, at the Gatlinburg Church of Christ because it was Wednesday night. That's what you do. You don't skip church just because you're on vacation, right? So we went to Bible study. There were about 40 of us in the building, I guess, that night. And there were few enough of, few enough of us that there wasn't a teenage class, so we just all sat in the general auditorium class in the back of the auditorium there in Gatlinburg, many of you have been there. You know exactly the old A-frame building. The, the, sea, the roof actually almost touches the ground on the outside of that old building. And the, the class teacher, I don't remember everything he was teaching, but I remember he gave some people some verses to read. And he said, the next verse is Hebrews 13.1. Who has that one? And over about right over here, about where Christopher Pickard is sitting, actually. Sorry, Christopher, but an old man stood up. <laughs> He, he had to be at least in his 70s. And I'm trying to be very kind here. He probably was much older than that. It took him a long time to stand up. And he said, Hebrews 13.1 says, Let brotherly love continue. And we need to remember that it says let and not make. And for Christians, that should be easy. And with that, this aged saint sat down and a teenage boy's life was changed forever. It's one of the shortest verses in the Bible. 
In fact, in the original language, there's only three words in this verse. There's the word that's translated brotherly love. You know it, Philadelphia. That's the word. Brotherly love. Sometimes it's mentioned as brotherly kindness, but same concept. There's another word in this particular verse in the original language that means to remain or to be constant or to continue. So you have continue. But the other word is not the word let. I'm not saying it's a bad translation, but it's interesting that in the original language, the first word in that verse is a little short word that means the. What? Literally, what Hebrews 13.1 says in the original language is, the brotherly love remains. Now, that doesn't make a lot of grammatical sense to you and me. But tie it together and tie it back to consider Jesus. When you and I consider Jesus, the brotherly love remains. By the way, did you notice the verse that immediately preceded this in the book of Hebrews? For our God is a consuming fire. Not the happiest verse in the Bible, is it? And what a contrast. What the Hebrews writer is trying to get us to see is, yes, we need to be reminded of God's wrath. That God will punish. That God will not just allow everybody into heaven just because He's some grandfather who just loves everybody all the time and never sees anything wrong with anybody. But no, He said out law, He is a consuming fire. But if we let the brotherly love remain, I don't have to worry about that. Because my brothers and sisters in Christ are going to keep me, as we say, on the straight and narrow. But did you notice what that old gentleman said? The text does not say, make brotherly love continue. It simply says, let brotherly love continue. You see, when you and I focus our eyes on Jesus, it is assumed that there will be brotherly love. And when I focus my eyes on Jesus, it is assumed that I will not be the reason why that love, why that unity is ever broken. Oh, but you don't know what He said. You don't know what she did. You don't know the decision they made. You don't know what... Let brotherly love continue. May I remind all of us that the opposite concept is true. If brotherly love is not continuing, my eyes are not fixed on Jesus. May I say that again? If brotherly love is not continuing, my eyes are not fixed on Jesus. We have wonderful people in this room. But there's little slights. There's little problems. There's little squabbles. I'll never get over this. I'll never get over that. I can't believe that they did this. I can't believe that they did that. Consider Jesus. And if we fix our eyes on Him, the brotherly love remains. Number two, when we consider Jesus hospitality is just normal. It's just normal. If, uh, 
Hebrews chapter 13, I almost said Ephesians. What book we study this morning? Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2 contains one of those phrases in the Bible that we like to spend like all of our Bible class time talking about. The last part of the verse, some have entertained angels unawares. I don't know how many times I've sat in Bible classes or we've talked about that forever. I don't know how many pages of commentaries and blog articles and websites I've read trying to figure out what in the world does the Hebrews writer have in mind when he talks about entertaining angels unawares. And yes, I have an idea as to what it means, but I want us to keep in mind for a second, it is a whole lot easier to try to fuss and argue and put what I think this can mean about those angels unawares and not follow the command that's found in the verse. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's the command in the verse. Figuring what this angels thing meant, and I'm a good Bible class fodder, and it might be an interesting discussion from time to time, but a direct command from God to Christians is, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And it's easier to argue over the controversial part of the verse than to follow the direct command given in the verse. By the way, there's an interesting play on words found between verse 1 and verse 2. Remember back up in verse 1, The writer had used the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. Here in verse 2, he uses the word Philozenia, lover of strangers. It's a form of the same word, by the way. It's found in the qualification of elders. He must be hospitable. Literally, he must be a lover of strangers is what that word means. I think the Hebrews writer would use those two words found in verse 1 and verse 2 to remind Christians, yes, I need to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. But if I'm not careful, I can love them so much that I fail to show love to those who are not my brothers and sisters in Christ, to those who are outsiders, you want to think of it that way. And so Christianity is not an either-or thing. It's a balanced thing. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love you. Love you. But I can't love you so much that I never love and show hospitality to those who aren't my brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter wrote a letter to Christians who were dealing at a time where Christians were being persecuted and spread because of persecution. And so because of that, you, you might be living in your home one day and a, and a Christian you didn't know from some town might knock on the door and say, hey, I, I need a place to sleep tonight. I'm literally running for my life. It's interesting that Peter gives the command to them in 1 Peter chapter 4 to show hospitality to them without grumbling. Without grumbling. I guess you can spend the night... <clears throat> But it means another trip to the market. Hospitality is a lost art. And I think it's a lost art for a couple of reasons, and they're very divergent reasons. On one side, it's because we're just too busy. I can't imagine having somebody in our home. I like to sleep in my house. It's nice to actually get to bed at some point, right? We have got just constant things going on basically from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed and we're pushing those things closer together to try to fit everything in. That's one side of it. The other side of it is because we get the idea that hospitality has to mean that our house looks like the front of a magazine. Now, now I fully understand that when we show hospitality to people, we want them to feel welcome. We want them to feel honored by, by being there. And we want them to see the love of Christ. And part of the way that comes through is we, we honor them by what we do to, to show that when they're, when, when they're in our home. But in reality, all hospitality means is showing love to someone. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that the house has to look like the front of a magazine. A few weeks ago, 
was helping to hold a gospel meeting in Kentucky. Uh, it's one of the meetings where my brother-in-law preached one sermon, and I led singing, and then we swapped all the way through the week. And so people would have us over for meals, and my family of four, his family of five, and my parents. I'll talk about raising up the grocery bill. <laughs> but there, there was one night, and there was a couple who uh, wanted to have us for a meal, but they lived way out from the building, and they were actually renovating their house. And they thought, how can we possibly fit 11 people plus us in this house? And so instead of doing that, they just took us out to a local restaurant, paid for our meal, and we had a wonderful conversation. That was showing love. I think it's better to have people in our home from time to time to show them that hospitality, but folks, we can come with every excuse in the book not to. When we consider Jesus, I will want to show people His love any way I possibly can. You see, hospitality should just be normal. It's not always opening up our home. It's not always having someone around the dinner table, although that's wonderful. It's simply showing someone the love of Christ any way I possibly can, whether they're one of my brothers and sisters in Christ or whether they're a stranger. When we consider Jesus, hospitality is normal. Number three, when we consider Jesus, marriages are stronger. Marriage in our culture, you don't need me to tell you this, is under attack. And it's been under attack and assault long before the Supreme Court ever tried to redefine marriage. And notice I put they tried to redefine it. We can't redefine marriage. God has already defined it. But it was under attack long before that. From no-fault divorce to, to even just little jabs and jokes about marriage. It is tragic how marriage has become the punchline of so many jokes. And yet Hebrews 13 and verse 4 condemns those kind of actions. Because the verse very clearly says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Literally, the verse reads, Marriage is precious and esteemed in all positions. Now, that may sound like a very strange wording. You and I wouldn't word it that way. But when you unpack it, it's beautiful. Basically, what the Hebrews writer is saying is, I don't care what position you hold. I don't care if you're the emperor of Rome or if you're a servant who can't think without his master's permission, you honor marriage. You honor your own marriage, but it doesn't doesn't just say honor your own marriage. It just says marriage. Marriage is to be esteemed. Marriage is to be honored. Even if you're single, do you honor marriage? When, When you are married and you look at someone else's marriage, do you honor their marriage as well as your own? Because you see, marriage is far more than just some pretty Saturday afternoon afternoon ceremony. It's a picture. Hold your place in Hebrews 13. And I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read a very familiar passage. Because I think there's a connection here to what Paul said in Ephesians 5 to what we're looking at in Hebrews chapter 13. Ephesians 5, we're going to read verse 22 all the way through verse 33, the end of that chapter. Paul said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I know it's a long reading, but did you notice what Paul said as he was drawing that to a conclusion in verse 32? He said, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What's the it, that it refers to Christ and the church? The God-given relationship between husband and wife. In other words, when I take my eyes off of Jesus and take my eyes off of thinking of Him fully and strongly, my marriage will suffer. And how I think of other marriages will suffer. Folks, one of the reasons, in fact, I would suggest maybe the reason that marriage struggles so much in our society is not just because we've forgotten vows or not just because we don't have the best counseling. It's it's because we've forgotten Jesus. That's why marriages suffer. You see, Paul is trying to get us to see see in in Ephesians chapter 5 that a marriage is a portrait to be displayed to the world of Christ and the church. If I am not thinking of Jesus, then I don't know what portrait my marriage is supposed to display. Marriage is meant to be, as I tell everyone I do premarital counseling with, taking the vertical love and light that God shines into your life and bending it outward to the world. That's what Christian marriage is. And it makes certain that's clear enough. The Hebrews are, if you want to turn back there again to Hebrews 13, goes to the most intimate part of marriage. He states that the marriage bed is undefiled. Literally, it's not deformed. In other words, that intimate part of the relationship between a husband and wife is beautiful and is right and is made even stronger when husband and wife are focused on honoring Jesus. And then in a negative way, he states, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Folks, if your marriage ever struggles, if you struggle in your marriage, it's not just about getting husband and wife counseling, although that's important. You need to think of Jesus. Because he gave himself for his church. That's how much he loved his church. And that's how much I should love my spouse. When we consider Jesus, our marriages are stronger. And then number four, when we consider Jesus, contentment is a way of life. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you don't have all the best stuff this morning. Sorry. You may have the coolest stuff ever, or you may have had it, but I'm sorry, you've been here for an hour and something cooler probably just came out. Sorry, you don't have the best stuff. You don't have all the best stuff. That's all there is to it. The newest gizmo, the newest gadget, the fastiest, the fastiest, if that's a word, the shiniest, whatever it is, sometime in the last little while, somebody came out with something somewhere that's nicer and cooler than what you have. And we want those things. The allure of Money, David, and the the allure of the stuff of this world is constant in our lives. But we need to remember that the Bible teaches us here in Hebrews chapter 13 to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We know that famous teaching that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A lot of us can quote that verse, but the allure is so strong to other stuff. And it's not tempting to want nice things. It's not wrong, excuse me, to be tempted to want nice things. It's not wrong to, to put money away for a rainy day. It's not wrong to purchase new things at times. That's not the, what the Bible ever says. But the Bible does teach us to evaluate why. Why we would think of those things. 
How often do we sing the words, Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. And then we complain because I only have a 78-inch television. Now they have an 80-inch version with a clearer screen. Jesus is all the world to me. If you're constantly struggling with a lack of contentment, it's time to put your mind on Jesus. Remember what he said? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. All that stuff that we have, it's eventually going to fade away. It's not going to be as fast or as fasty or whatever I tried to say a minute ago. It's not going to be as shiny. It's not going to be as cool. One day it's going to be in the garbage or it's going to be in someone else's possession. But God will never leave us. Which would you rather put your mind on? That which will fade and leave or he who never will? Oh, oh, the problems we could solve if we would just fix our minds firmly, fully, and constantly on Jesus. And I challenge you to read the remaining verses of Hebrews chapter 13 and be reminded that all of those things that the Hebrews writer appeals, all of those applications he makes at the end of this book, all of them hinge on consider Jesus. Fix your mind on Him and all these points of application simply will not be a problem. You may have to work on them, but you'll know the right way to go. The unity of the congregation will be ongoing. It will never be forced. Strangers and outsiders will feel loved because Christians are willing to show them the love of Christ. Marriages will be stronger because we remember marriage is a picture, a portrait of Christ and His church. Materialism will never be named among God's people because contentment will reign our hearts by the one through the one who will never leave us. To solve all those issues, we must consider Him. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. In other words, and maybe I should have just said this and been done 27 or 28 minutes ago, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You're struggling in a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ? Struggling in your home? Is your marriage not what it should be, not what it could be? You're struggling with a lack of contentment. You're struggling to know how to treat outsiders. Consider Jesus. It may seem trite, but it's absolutely true. He's the answer to all of our problems. And it's time His church fixed our eyes on Him. Looked away from everything else. And said, Jesus, my eyes are on you. This morning, do you need to fix your eyes on him? Do you need to give your life to him? Do you need to return to him? Whatever your need is this morning, we invite you to come. We stand and sing to encourage you.